Yes, it's that time of year again. Of course, we love WKRP all year long, but especially now as we get closer to Thanksgiving and recall that incredibly funny episode. Did you know we have five different WKRP designs, including three different Turkey Drop-inspired ones? Simply go to CincyShirts.com and type WKRP into the search bar and have a look. Use the promo code at the end of this episode to save 20% on your entire order online or in-store. Now, on with the show. WKRP in Cincinnati. This is WCPO FM 1051 on your FM dial, Cincinnati, Ohio. Hi again, everyone, and welcome to the Cincy Shirts Podcast. It's episode 91. Today on our show, Cincinnati Museum Center President and CEO Elizabeth Pierce. There is no basement at Union Terminal. The lower level of Union Terminal is on grade at Dalton Street. So the building is really built up. And you don't really realize when you're walking in from the parking lot that you are essentially walking up two stories into the concourse. The Museum Center, of course, is in one of the most iconic buildings in the city. We learned about the museum's previous life as one of America's busiest train stations back there in the 30s and 40s, how its design influenced modern airports, how three museums came together under its half-domed roof, and the story behind how the building inspired the Hall of Justice from Super Friends. If you've been liking the podcast, you can help support it via PayPal or Venmo. Simply use podcast at cincyshirts.com. Kick in whatever you feel is fair. Also, be sure to listen for the special promo code for 20% off near the end of the episode. Now let's talk to Elizabeth Pierce from the Cincinnati Museum Center. Cincinnati, Ohio. Cincinnati, Ohio. I come from C-I-N-C-I-N-N-A-T-I, Cincinnati. CincyShirts.com in Cincinnati. So what is your position at the museum? I'm the CEO. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) Wow, so it's your museum. Well, not entirely. (laughs) How long have you been the CEO? Uh, Four years. Okay. And are you from Cincinnati? No, I grew up in Mansfield, Ohio. Uh Oh, close to your neck of the woods. Where are you from? Newcomerstown, Ohio. Not super close to Mansfield, okay. but closer. Where people just associate local uh, Northeast Ohio, Northeast yeah. or no- North Central Ohio. Yeah, Mentor. Oh yeah. Well, I'm probably closer to you, yeah. right? Then yeah. 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 You know, when I first moved here 20 years ago, we were having some conversation about something, and and at a business meeting, and the person next to me said, "I I need directions on how to get to Cleveland." And I was like, really? <laughs> really? You really need directions on Go how to get up. to Cleveland? There's, it's one road. One yep. road is involved. Boom. So. Right so. in downtown, baby. Yeah. Yeah. So I went to Miami undergrad, GW for graduate school, lived in Chicago, and then my husband said, we need to move to Cincinnati. And I was like, really? That's, well, it's not part of the Just, plan, but okay. Did so he have a job offer or He something? had a job that was going to yeah, bring him uh, here. Okay. What does he do? Well, so he now he works for a company that's based in Lebanon, Ohio, called uh, GMI Companies that are, um, I guess, furniture manufacturing of sorts uh-huh. and vivid boards and stuff like that. But he worked for Proctor, and then he left and went to work for Boston Scientific and then got recruited to come work for a company here in Cincinnati that does trade promotion stuff. So, so when you got here, what did you do for a job? 
I went to work for Dan Pinger, so I'd, I'd worked at the oh, Chicago yeah. Children's Museum God, for years. I remember that name in ages. Yeah, and I, I joined Dan Pinger in essentially December of 99 or January of 2000. Is that guy still around? He is. I know. I, I talked to him once about a job years ago, and I didn't get it. But I know people that know him. Yeah, he's, yeah. he's a character in so many ways. But So I did, I did strategic PR for two years, and then we had two little kids, and then I did a bunch of freelance PR and strategic communications, and, hmm. and ultimately went back to the museum field in 2007. As the vice president of marketing. But I'd been, like, they were one of my clients, and then I was a volunteer for them. And so I've been floating around Union Terminal since early 2000s. So finally they just gave you the keys and said, (laughs) (laughs) take care of our baby. Yeah, yeah. at a certain point they're like, oh, she knows where all the bodies are buried. I'm like, well, some of them. (laughs) Literally, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So it's October. Uh, Lots of ghosts at Union Terminal? There are a few ghosts at Union Terminal. Uh Uh-huh. There is a, a ghost. Um, now, of course, as a science organization, I'm not sure that they're really there. Oh yeah, but, of course. Um, but disclaimer: we, we have obviously t- we we've talked a lot about um, Shirley, the security guard. So Shirley was actually killed on site at Union Terminal somewhere in the early to mid '70s or maybe early '80s. I, I have to double double back to the people who were involved with this, but. Um, uh, so unfortunately, she was killed, um, and the the prosecutor at the time um, has since come back to the building, and uh, and so you know they put the guy away who did it, and and so her family got justice and all of that. But um, he claims the prosecutor claims that um, when he's inside Union Terminal doors open for him or elevators open for him that he Ooh. he uh, didn't he didn't um, think he had access to and he, he he thinks it's surely taking care of him I've never heard this oh wow <laughs> I did a blog post on the most haunted places in Cincinnati last year and th- that's that's never come up well you know it's probably not a public not conversation widely. public story that we talk oh, about people love their haunted yeah, stuff yeah, yeah. 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 someone would have spilled the beans by yeah, now yeah. that's awesome yeah. yeah so it is an historic building absolutely yeah and so, and the thing people always say, and is this true, it was built obsolete. Yeah, there is a lot of conversation around that because by the time it was really coming online as a train station, transportation was moving more toward cars and trucks. So I think it probably came in on the tail end of all of that. Without World War II as a, that really needed Union Terminal, it would have been much more obsolete faster than it was until the early 70s. But during World War II, you know, we it was built to really transport probably 15,000 people on a on a daily basis, trains coming and going and, you know, like the airport you're getting off one train and getting on another. Um during World War II, there were upwards of 35,000 people coming through on a daily basis. And um, as they were moving troops in transit around the country and people coming to see their loved ones off. And so any place you go and you run into folks that are World War II era, Korean um, War era, you could say the words Union Terminal and somebody is likely to have a story of if they had nothing to do with Cincinnati, they know the building because they passed through and as we've talked about the restoration of the building over many, many years, these stories kind of just come forth as people hear that and then they want to share. And, you know, that one of the stories I heard was a gentleman who didn't live in, 
in Cincinnati, um, but wound up moving here years later. And he was talking to guys from Cincinnati while they were deployed on the islands in the South Pacific during World War II. And, and everybody knew that train station because they'd all gone through it in some form or another. So <laughs> it's, it gives me chills to kind of talk through all the lives that have been impacted by this building. Is it was it a particularly busy station compared to others like say Cleveland or Detroit or Chicago? Or, yeah, it seems so like it was fundamentally because of the way it was built, um, it's what they call a through and through train station. So it, and it just the trains roam from the, the north to the south. Some of the other train stations, the trains had to pull into the station and then back out again. Um. So it's a very efficient train station, and um, I think geographically, as trains were were taking folks from the East Coast and getting a lot of them deployed out of the Pacific Coast. They had to crisscross the country and meet up here in Cincinnati before they went on to Chicago or or another location and then further out. And as I recall, it replaced three different train stations, right? Seven different Seven. trains. Wow. Seven different train stations that were scattered all over downtown in different ways. You could not easily, as a passenger, transport yourself and your luggage, right? This is not the day of suitcases on wheels um, from one to the other. And then, as I understand it, there was a lot of flooding throughout downtown. And, and, you know, it took a long time before we really understood how to manage the rivers correctly. So the intention of the city fathers who created it was they blew up the hillside on 75 called Bald Knob and used all of that to bring the tracks out of the floodplain so you could your train travel would not be stymied by the flood and you could consolidate all your activity in one building. And it was really a little city unto itself. So lots of commerce, lots of business meetings were taking place there. I mean, there were men's lounges and women's showers and, you know, so you could come in and have a full day of experience and have a very civilized journey. Where'd they get the, uh, like the the layout for the actual building. I mean, it, it just seems like so unique. I mean, I know it has like a a lot of Art Deco uh, design qualities to it and whatnot. But, but as far as just being like a a half dome and it's just so big and grandiose. Yeah. I mean, that really wasn't a thing back in the day, right? Like, were there? It was really modern. Were there buildings like this around the country? Or? Well, and originally it was supposed to look like Union Station in. DC yeah. or the train station in Chicago, which had the you know the very classical columns and all of that, and that was too costly, which is ultimately what led them to choose the design that they did choose. Oh, they, that was the cheap version, and it, they know. wanted it to have that kind of sleek, modern. Like if you think about the front of some of those trains, the the building itself is shaped like it, right? So it's very oh, yeah. kind of curved and and. Um, new age for the time and and art deco was coming online and the architects decided to play around with it and then that led to um the use of new materials in different ways so the fundamental flaw of the building's architecture is something we just had to address within this massive restoration because they were using concrete and steel together for the first time and did not fully appreciate that those are two different materials that move and cure and freeze and thaw at different rates. And so the water that leached into the building over time through different joints and, and bad flashing and other pieces just kind of got in there, froze, thawed, pushed the concrete and the 
brick and the steel away from one another, then of course it oxidizes, it rusts. It's a whole cycle of repeating, repeating, repeating. So you get a bigger and bigger breach in the envelope, more water gets in. I mean, you have 85 years of that whole process. So that's what we've just addressed to make the building as watertight as possible going forward and then doing mechanical overhauls and some interior architecture updates wow. and obviously all the historic preservation that was done. That seems like such a crazy task. I mean, the whole building has been addressed then? Or yes, yes. Certain sections? So or? you know those balls that you see that are like kind of all rolled up together and then you pull them out like gears and like that that's kind of what we did we just like to pulled the whole building apart oh. fixed all the stuff inside and put it all back together again wow top so to bottom so top we're good to for bottom. another thousand years we are definitely good i would say for the next 200 years uh, so which until is, the next levy comes yes up. yes <laughs> <laughs> 200 years that's awesome yeah. So even though this is what almost this that's my two hundred years is my prediction. I'm sure the architects <laughs> would tell me less than that, but not a, at least a hundred. You right? did your part. A generational fix. Yeah. yeah, what I just realized is that even though this is what eventually would kill it, it's very automobile friendly in a way that say terminal tower in Cleveland built around the same time right. is not at all, and still isn't for that matter. Well, right, because the cars and the trucks would drive through the yeah. building, which is also what makes it such a fabulously unique space to have museums in. So to have the ramps be the galleries is an incredible adaptation of how it was originally conceived. But it was really the precursor to how we do modern airports today. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons that, you know, that that layout and the way the building separated people and cars and all of that activity, along with all the Art Deco, is kind of how it became um, nationally historic as, as part of that um, registry the, in the early 70s. And the main concourse that's no longer there, that also is uh, how airports were eventually designed. Right. That was right. only a train station. Thing. Yes, yeah. Were, fact, the, were the murals uh, a part of the original Oh, uh, yeah, building? Absolutely. I don't know if those came later. Yes, or... and I'm, I'm surprised. I guess I take it for granted. I was just talking to some people last night who were at the building who didn't realize that the murals are made up of teeny tiny pieces of glass tile yeah. that are pressed into the stucco. So people kind of walk in and they look at them and they think, oh, it's painted, or they maybe haven't gotten up close to see the detail that, that specifically. But um, certainly they are shining and the color saturation is amazing now after it's been cleaned and it's just kind of jumping off of you, out the wall at you. I only know that from working at the airport because um, they were they moved them in the 70s yeah. when they tore down the uh, main concourse at the railroad station and right. moved them to the new terminals at the airport. And then they had these little plaques up, and I remember reading about them and going, oh, that's that's where these came from. Right, right. And so, I mean, many of them are still at the airport. Others yeah. that have been moved back are on the backside of the convention center now. Oh, oh that's right, yeah. I've seen them there, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we have a couple still within within the building itself. So after World War II, yeah. it, it's pretty rapid decline. Yes. By early 70s, so I, as I understand it, train travel in Cincinnati stopped in 1972. And then the building sat vacant for a long period of time before it was adapted to be a shopping mall. And that was good news for us because they at least kept the ball in play a little bit yeah, longer yeah. and helped people utilize the building. And then finally it became a place for the museums. They started that process of kind of thinking about moving the museums in there in the late 80s and then opened in early 90. So how long was it a shopping mall? I think only three or four years before they realized that it was not going to be the destination that people thought it would. Yeah, I've seen pictures. It looks really weird. <laughs> it does look really weird. Yeah. 
So where were, where were all the museums before? I know for a time the Children's Museum was in Longworth, but I don't know if that... Oh, it used to be yeah. over where Channel 9 is now. Yeah, the it? Natural History Museum was on Gilbert Avenue. So the okay. natu- so we are going into the 200... Well, we are in the midst of the 200th anniversary of the Museum of Natural History. Oh, wow. It was created by Daniel Drake in 1818. And then John Audubon was hired as the first employee in 1819. And the doors of the Western Museum, as it was called at that moment in time, opened in 1820 downtown, like kind of 4th Street area downtown. Wow. And so it moved around to a couple locations. Most people are familiar with its iteration at Gilbert Avenue, where that was built in the late 50s and early 60s. And um, the Mastodons were sitting out in front of it. And what, you know, the Historical Society was founded in 1831 and uh, really, I think, lived most of the time in a section of what is now the Cincinnati Wing and the Cincinnati Art Museum. And it was an organization that was only collecting two-dimensional objects. So manuscripts, books, maps, photography, but no, like actual three-dimensional kind of history objects that came later. So both the Natural History Museum was out of space. The Historical Society wanted to create a history museum. Union Terminal was sitting vacant. So there was a lot of conversation around should these things kind of move together? Could they move into Union Terminal? And that's what led to the museum center being created in the early 90s. And then the Children's Museum as a concept was started by the Junior League. And it was an exhibit that traveled around town. And then it got um, space at Longworth and was built up there for a period of time. And at a certain point, they were running out of space. Or actually, there was a flood that took place. So it managed to kind of bring everything together. So the Children's Museum moved into Union Terminal in 1998. Okay. Wow. That makes sense. So so all those museums ran out of space eventually. is Is there enough space to expand the current museums in Union Terminal now? Well, it's a very big building, 535,000 square feet, and I think I think we have enough space to work with. We just need to keep utilizing it in the best way possible. So there's, like, lots of hidden floors and I was going to say, it seems, especially when you're way down in it, it seems like they just, like, when they have those special exhibitions mm-hmm. and stuff, it's like, oh, this is back here. Like, how far does this go on? Right, it's right. Like, it's like layers and layers yeah. of the building, which is why our party on the November 1st is called the Layers of Wonder, because you can dance through oh. the layers of the building. But um, so the, yeah, we are, we have really, I think we have enough display space for all the exhibits and the stories we want to tell. We are um, at some point going to need to have more storage space for the objects and the history material and the things that we want to continue to collect over time as a community. And um, most of our objects are stored off-site, not at Union Terminal, but at the Geyer Collections Center um, on Guest Street. So that's where all of we keep we keep track of everything in special drawers and and locked cabinets to prevent bugs and pests and and some of the stuff is now controls. permanently at the airport. Some of it is at the airport, absolutely, and and uh, permanent is up to the airport. So okay. we'll, we'll yeah. let yeah. I, but I love having uh, the mastodon at the airport, and people the, love the, seeing the, the two ice Crosley age. cars are sitting yeah. in baggage claim. Crosley oh, cars, yeah, yeah, yeah. We've brought a number of things back from the airport. Um, God bless the airport and the library systems and so many other folks who helped us kind of put things on display while we were in the middle of the reconstruction of Union Terminal because we needed a place to store them. 
And it was great to have them out in the community. Can I keep this at your place. Can I put this in the garage. <laughs> yeah. So it was great to. So we moved some of those things back because they're on display. The polar bear is coming back on display got for the a, holidays. Got a big sloth here. Where'd your polar bear go? He, he was he there? was at the public library for a while. Ah. And then he made it his uh, film debut in Emilio Estevez's movie. The ah. Wow. Yes. Polar bear is a sad yeah, card. Yeah. 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 <laughs> right? yeah. He has a credit. Barry White is his name. What's his banking number? There you go. <laughs> so. So how much of stuff is on display and how much is in storage? It's always Roughly. a good question. I don't. I will have to go back and crunch the numbers on the percentage. I think we have more stuff on display than you might see at a typical museum from the items in the collection. But yeah. there's always more than... And a lot of things that you want to put on display but are not great for light or touch. So using digital technology to scan them and then give people access to them in a number of ways. So one of the cool ways that that technology is showing up right now in the building is we've got this special exhibition that commemorates the 200th birthday of everything. And we have John Ruthven's artwork shared with John Audubon's artwork. And the public library has loaned to us their elephant folios of so the size of this table. There are four of his Great Birds of America books, John Audubon's books, that are just beautiful and breathtaking. And wow. obviously you can't flip through those pages easily. And you're only we're only kind of changing the page once uh, a month kind of stuff. So the library had digitized every single piece in the book and there is a special kind of projector and a touchpad and a place where you can wave your hand over it like you're changing the pages oh, of the books go. themselves so you get a chance to see all of the artwork that that is there uh, was Audubon from Cincinnati he was not from Cincinnati he <clears throat> and I don't know all the details because I haven't read the book that I've been carrying around with me for several weeks but um, he ultimately wound up coming from Henderson, Kentucky, up to Cincinnati because he lost his business. He had a grist mill, and um, there were a number of environmental factors that created enough agricultural um, chaos at one point in time. And so there were his... There were, the farm crops didn't come in, so his mill didn't work. So he ultimately came to Cincinnati uh, looking for a job, and that's how Daniel Drake, he had been referred to Daniel Drake, and that's how he got hired. And he was not here for that long of a period before he decided to go off down to New Orleans along the Ohio and Mississippi River to create his Great Birds of America document. And he went to Europe and sold those on subscription and then created this business model that Rest made him successful. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And Ruthven is from here, right? John Ruthven is from Cincinnati, yeah. And he grew up coming to the Natural History Museum. He tells us this wonderful, charming story. So he is about to turn 95. Wow. He is an amazing, amazing person. And he brought his very first specimen into the Natural History Museum when he was 10 years old. He found a hummingbird that had kind of gotten trapped in his screen door. And he thought it was just the most precious thing, and he wanted to bring it to the director of the museum. And the director of the museum had a great conversation with him about, you know, tell me what you see, observe with the bird. What do you think, you know, this bird compared to other birds are? And John said that was the moment that the director sent him off to go find more things in nature and bring back to the museum. And that became this dialogue that he's had and this kind of quest for for science and conservation of nature and and he fancied himself a young Mr. Audubon traipsing off to the river with his gun to shoot some birds and then draw them up and wow. kind of learn more about if people still drop off specimens don't they like 
They do in different ways. Most of the birds that come in um, are maybe that, you know, something flew into a window and, and um, people check in and say, do you have this in your collection or not? We have a lot of the stuff that you would typically find around here in our collection. We also had an ornithologist who traveled the world and did a great deal of work about biodiversity throughout um, East Asian uh, islands. And so that's been a big bulk of our collection and a number of other scientific study collections that have come in as well. And John has gone on, on various adventures and collected s specimens for us. And then we have a whole tissue sample. So not only are they there because we want to see the diversity of the range of the animals and how you know, different species change over time, but we've also been able to collect tissue samples and do DNA sequencing. So as innovation in research continues, we've got this incredible wealth of information that we can keep plugging into these new forms of research wow. and, and continue to learn about adaptation and species decline or, or increase and kind of how the world, you know, the, Birds don't really understand borders. They just go where they need to go, and animals do what they need to do. And so that's part of the great education of things. Huh. I have a rock I need to bring in. What kind of rock? I may or may not have a geode. Oh, interesting. But I don't know. It could just be a ball of concrete. <laughs> I don't know. But it's unusual because I dug it up in the yard at my previous house. Okay. We were, uh, I, we were putting in... A, no, it's a funny story. Down about I'm four listening. feet. Dug down about four feet, dug out this rock, and it was by where the fence was. Okay. So it looked like it, but it's too round to be to hold a fence post because you would think it would be jagged and it would be more, you know. So I pulled it out, and my dad thinks that, and he's a kind of an amateur geologist. He goes, I'm pretty sure that's a geode. Okay. So I called the museum years ago and never got around to bringing it in. And the, and the guy said, Well, there wouldn't be any geodes around here. And I said, Could it have been brought from somewhere else? Oh, well, sure. there are geodes. And he goes, That's perfectly possible. And so I, one of these days, I'll, it's sitting in my front yard right now in my rock garden. Um, maybe one of these I'll, I'll take it down there and they'll be like... Oh, is it super big? It's about, and, oh, no, about no. that big. Okay. A little smaller Reasonable. than, yeah. smaller than a, bat, about a size cut of a volleyball. Is that what, you do? what do you do with a geode? I reckon if they want to cut it open, they're more than welcome to do it. Because I'm afraid I'm going to get down there and they'll be like, this is a block of concrete, you idiot. I'm out of here. <laughs> Got things to do here. <laughs> well, we have really important rocks in this area, as you may know. I mean, our oh, rocks yeah. are world famous and there are people coming from you know every well, corner of the universe to study our rocks. I was painting my house, the outside of my house yesterday. And I looked. I was painting one of the columns. And I looked down, and in the rock garden runs right up against the porch. And I yeah. looked down, and I thought, "Is another? Oh, this! I must have gotten this. Where did I get this piece of concrete from?" But actually, there's like, there's little shells embedded Ooh, in it, yes. so it's not. And yes. I got it from the creek uh, yeah. in my backyard. So, so yeah. yes, you have some Ordovician rock right there. Yeah, yeah. Four hundred million year old rock this in, was our, once in our a, neighborhood. A, this was once a great sea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. glaciers yeah. and all that fun stuff. It's amazing to you know. This is just really cool things that we have access to and that have been collected over time. And so the trilobites, we just had Fossil Fest at the museum, which was a celebration of all things vertebrate and invertebrate. And Cincinnati has the world famous invertebrate fossils that people want to come and see the trilobites and the crinoids and the... the you, can, you can pick up right along the freeway. Yeah, yeah. It's amazing. 275 right after you cross over on your what way to we the Kentucky. See the I see people hill? pull off all the time just to get rocks for their yeah, landscaping the, the, and there's little fossils in them. Huh. 
We would caution one from pulling off the side of the road. <laughs> I keep it all, yeah, but yeah, I've, and I've done it, and it's pretty dangerous. Yes, so, yeah. Thankfully, my backyard is full of them now. So. <laughs> well, we're, I'm, I'm waiting for somebody to make an official uh, scientific paper that says the water quality of this area that makes the beer so fabulous is really because it's filtered through um, oh. invertebrate paleontology yeah. specimens. So, yeah. well, so it's trilobite poop that is making your beer taste as uh, spectacular. That'd be a great gimmick. I think so. <laughs> you have all this room at Union terminal i'm always up for pitching new businesses and new directions for places yeah. to go you need your own brewery yep and yes. yeah i like that filtered through fossils or mission brewery there you go i do have a master plan for food science that you know we will eventually get to because when we had to take everything out of union terminal now we're working on how do we put it all back in and where do we have the private funding to do that and part of that is around um using food and drink as a way to explain science principles to folks and get people more excited about science so obviously the brewing history in the community is amazing yeah. to do that with and are great recipes to be shared and yeah. multi-generation and lots of cultures in this community that we could really do a lot of cool programming around food. So that's that's on the horizon. That's part of my wish list. And So in addition to being a shopping mall idea, there were a couple other ridiculous ideas they had for the museum. I remember seeing drawings. There was like, they were going to stick two towers on either side. I have seen that drawing before what, as well. What was it going to be, an office building? Uh, I think office buildings, and then there was like a heliport thing hel somewhere. Heliport was big in, in the 40s. The master plan for Cincinnati uh, in 1948, I'll try to dig it up and put it on the blog. It's like, it's heliports everywhere. Man. <laughs> they were crazy for heliports. There was one big one right next to the bridge downtown. Really? Uh, next to the foot, the proposed football stadium, and if you read the details of that, we'll fly the mail from Anderson Township, and then and they say, and then at the end they go. By the way, this may be a bunch of nonsense. We don't know, but we'll, if heliports do come, we're ready. Yeah, we have all the all the plans. Oh, my flying car! They were heliport crazy back then. There, oh, there, there you go. They were hella heliport crazy. There we go. Yeah. So, so how difficult was it to get? Everybody, because, you know, famously, we've, been, we've had these discussions before on the podcast, you know, since it could have been the next Chicago, but we we stuck to the river instead of going with trains. Yeah. We, the bridge doesn't line up between <laughs> all these, you know, boneheaded things we did. Idiosyncrasies It seems like the Museum Center was like something that really worked well and is still really unique uh, in the country. It is very unique in the country, and what I am reminded by every museum meeting we go to, which, you know, there are history museum meetings and children's museum meetings and science museum meetings and, and science center museums, everybody wants something else that the other group has. <laughs> so the historians, because they have great objects, want more hands-on touch, and they want more kids to come and play. And the children's museum folks want more science objects, and the science object people want more historical context around those science objects yeah. and it's fascinating and I just sit at those meetings and kind of um, smile to myself that we have all of that working together in concert with each other inside one of the most spectacular buildings in the world so destination architecture and great hands-on and great depth of collections that's what all these different museums want we, we got it here in Cincinnati and, and we need to celebrate that so it has worked out. The great experiment of moving the museums into Union Terminal has worked out in a really spectacular way. Yeah, I mean, you also got the Omnimax and you got say, yeah. the traveling exhibits, yeah. too. Yes. Uh, yeah, and the Holocaust and Humanities Center is a brand new 
tenant inside Union Terminal. So the rest of us are all working together within a corporate structure. Holocaust and Humanity Center is a separate 501c3, but they are a new tenant inside Union Terminal. And that's 6,000 square feet of exhibition space that they tell the story of Holocaust survivors and how they came to this community and have gone and done amazing things, Hmm. uh, but also putting it within the context of this, this horrible experience in the world. It's so fascinating to think about the fact that the liberators of the camps went through Union Terminal and the survivors of the camps came through Union Terminal to start their lives here in Cincinnati. And these are people who have done amazing things in our community as well. So there's a really wonderful new component to what you can experience at Union Terminal. And if you think about it, we've got stuff from the time that you are six months of age as a small person learning about the world, all the way through somebody who is 106 years of age. And at each phase of your life, we probably have something that is going to make you a little bit more curious about the world, maybe a little bit more interesting to your dinner party companions. And Omnimax and special exhibits are all part of that dynamic also. Wow. So if I came up with a concept for a museum and uh, got my own funding, I could just rent some space. In, uh, in, in theory. In theory. There are, I have a lot of restrictions right you have now. Have a museum? <clears throat> oh, I'll, I'll have to think of one. I'll be in touch. Oh. But uh, <laughs> we'll have to do some paperwork. But, yeah, are people uh, knocking on your door for, you know, maybe exhibition ideas or... I'm Lots sure everyone has opinions on, you know, how everything should be displayed. And there are no lack of opinions. What your message world, right? is. Yeah, lots of collections and and different ideas for different exhibits and, you know, people see something that we've presented and then they want to talk about how their their piece of it could be on display as well. So, yeah, always open to those discussions because you never know where it's going to lead you. And we are doing some temporary exhibitions in the next year, working with a number of groups around town to do something around suffrage, the 100th anniversary of women's suffrage and... um, you know, so many different aspects of Cincinnati neighborhoods and, and different components of Cincinnatians or things that have been made here or made by Cincinnatians that we want to tell the stories of. So we're very much progressing both for permanent exhibition stories as well as temporary exhibitions in different ways. And of course, we have one of the most spectacular temporary exhibits right now, which is the Apollo 11 Command oh, yeah, Module. Yeah. Which has got all sorts of great Cincinnati connections. Yeah, I gotta kind of see. How long is that there? That'll be there till mid February. Okay. But if you want the director's tip, I would come now before the holiday trains open. Oh yeah. Because then you will have all the. You'll it'll be a little quieter and you'll have a good experience all the way through. But it's also great to see the film that goes along with the Apollo 11 exhibition. So on the Omnimax uh, screen right now, we've got two titles. Cuba, which is really lush and vivid and tells the story of... of, because of the financial embargo, economic embargo, their lack of business in Cuba has allowed, essentially, the lack of pesticides and the lack of industrial yeah, activity. Yeah, the oceans are pristine. Yes. The beaches are all... So it's an interesting yeah. juxtaposition to see that. Um, so the Cuba film is interesting in a lot of ways with good music and dancing and baseball and all of that kind of culture. Then the other Omnimax film we have is all the historic footage of the Apollo 11 run-up to the launch, the mission, and the splashdown. And you see that film, all of that historic footage, all the historic narrative that goes along with it. And then you see the object itself. And it's like, holy cow, that's amazing. And you think, how did they really do that? Yeah, that's 
It's crazy to actually see it in person. Yeah. I mean, that, uh, I mean, besides from the awesome movies, uh, the Omnimax Theater itself is uh, crazy to, to step inside. Yeah. Uh, I mean, just that just got the, renovated. Yeah, you guys it did. It, it was thank you. It was part of that renovation. We converted everything to from film to digital. That's right. Yeah. So oh, yeah. So the new projector. New that, projector. That, that projector. You could just to walk down the steps. And oh, see. you could see all the film. Yeah, going. the poor yeah. guy trying to wind it up, back <laughs> up or whatever. You should. I mean, even though it's not real, you should still have somebody in there just playing around with like yeah. a big. A big ball of film just going <laughs> everywhere. I hadn't thought about the big ball of film. We have, we have talked about how do how do people continue to see what that technology yeah. used to be? I mean, and now elves. you just Bring press the a button. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yes. Oh, that would be fun too. Have them. Yeah. Oh, they're looking for a home. We so. have conversations with them on occasion about how how and when they could fit themselves into the museum. So we'll see if that ever comes to fruition. Because yeah, every time they move, they they are a little less. Uh, good shape. Mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. So when did the museum reopen after the renovation? It was just recent. So just a year ago, November 1st, we got our certificate of occupancy, 2018. And then we opened some of the science exhibitions in December and the Omnimax came back on in December and the cave reopened in March. Oh, the cave. I want to talk about the cave. Yeah. Uh, and then the Neil Armstrong, our permanent Neil Armstrong Space Exploration Gallery opened in May. So it's been this kind of steady drumbeat of things and we're in that private fundraising mode to do more of that steady drumbeat over the next couple of years. So so there are some galleries that are fully opened and other galleries that we're still building and um, okay. coming online. Is it, and, uh, is it still the same essential layout you the history museum it's the train set and then it's the it's the all the world war ii stuff well the world war ii stuff has been removed so that was a temporary exhibition that they created to mark the 50th anniversary of world war ii that was in uh 1991 and and we just stuck around we took it out in 2016 so um, so yeah when you go into the history museum you'll still see the cincinnati in motion train display and that's all been kind of revamped and relit and some cool stuff that we're doing to help explain that in greater detail and then we will have a new gallery right next to it that will really focus on neighborhood development in this tri-state region over time, how, how transportation has changed and the innovations in transportation have helped spur forward neighborhood development and the, all the impacts that go along with that. So that's going to be kind of an interesting story as well. And um, and then in the lower level of the history museum, you have the public landing, yeah. that you know the immersive what it was like in the 1850s with the steamboat and all of that. And then there are there are galleries that are being developed that will give more depth of what's it like to live and work and play in this community. What are the things that have been made here over time, and who are the pieces and the parts that go along with that? So the history museum is coming back online in interesting ways. And really trying to create some more hands-on stuff in the History Museum and maybe explain a little bit of a STEM overlay in some aspects of history, because that's just kind of this juxtaposition of these things, or intersection is really a better word for it. And then in the Natural History Museum, when you walk in, we have a brand new spectacular dinosaur gallery. So if you think about the last time you were there, there was a totem pole and nature's trading post was at the far end. The polar bear. Yeah, polar bear and all of that. When you walk in now, you will see some unbelievable dinosaurs, and Mm. they are just breathtaking 
And we've added a new gallery next to the dinosaurs that are all hands-on science interactives. So you get 175 million-year-old dinosaur bones and stories about natural history. And then right next to it, you get physics and forces in motion and some chemistry and some basics of STEM that we're trying to put in place. And then we've got another ramp on that, that far right, far side that will be biodiversity and getting kind of into nature and bringing those collections that we talked about earlier kind of forward so people understand why all of that is important as well. And over there, over there, there used to be the, uh, the log, it was like a log cabin thing, and then the 1890s house, and yeah, then the 1950s yes, house. Yes, yes, So all that's, that's all gone. That's oh, all gone. Man. Everything <laughs> needed, a, you know, the, the one complaint over time was that the permanent exhibits were not new or refreshed yeah. in any way. So people stopped coming or we lost people at a certain age and then they didn't really come back to us again. Yeah. So now the idea is with a lot of these new experiences to have something that gets refreshed much more often. Uh-huh. So the framework is, is there, but technology allows more stories to come through and more objects to be put on display. And hopefully that means that you will want to come back more often. And even as your kids age or you become a adult with no kids at home, you want to continue to come to the museum as a destination, as a kind of third place, if you will. And how far down does the, like, what's the bottom floor? Okay, how many floors down is it? Right, so it goes three floors down. There is no basement at Union Terminal. The lower level of Union Terminal is on grade at Dalton Street. So the building is really built up. And you don't really realize when you're walking in from the parking lot that you are essentially walking up two stories into the concourse. And the fountain there is a roof to a third of the building. And the fountain sits over top of the Natural History Museum and the Children's Museum. And Dalton Street drives underneath of it. So that's that was a major part of the renovation oh, wow. was like the removal in there, huh? of pieces of the fountain all the way down to the structural decking to waterproof all of that, uh, and then massive pieces of construction equipment putting the limestone back in. So what's the, the bottom floor the, the, for the public? Is it the special exhibits area and the children's museum? Is that all on the? Ground? It's that's on the lower level, and then it's the it's the uh, lower level of science and history as well. Okay. And one of the changes that we've made with all of this is that we now have entrances to those museums on the lower level, just as we do in the concourse level. Okay. So I'm hoping that people will be able to kind of zig and zag around the museum, following their own sense of curiosity yeah. and kind of making their own adventure up every time they come. Because, you know, every time we go, we're kind of different people. We've got something else on our yeah. mind that we want to know something about. So we've created these kind of pathways where you can zig and zag throughout. Cool. Go from the cave to Neil Armstrong's permanent space gallery, which is really awesome. Yeah. So the cave. Cave. Let's talk about the cave. Yeah. So how, <laughs> I mean, it's just, a, how did they get a cave in there? I just... <laughs> I had a great conversation was that? Yeah. with somebody. So I and I did not live here growing up, so I did not go to the museum at Gilbert Avenue. So I never had a chance to experience the cave at Gilbert Avenue. But um, oh, the cave was was been around for. Oh, I mean, there was a cave before. Oh yeah. Oh wow. That's kind of how they decided that they would move that experience or recreate that experience rather inside Union Terminal. So I mean, it is a full recreation of a limestone cave, kind of modeled off of Mammoth. 
and it was built into the building. People called me in a panic when we were under renovation. What do you, you can't take the cave out? I'm like, no, of course I can't take the cave out. It's built into the building. It would be impossible. Um, So, but we have refreshed lighting and we've told a new story at the beginning of the visitor experience at the cave. So they understand how caves form and who lives in a cave, like which animals and, and insects live in the cave and how the cave environment creates different adaptations of those animals than, than kind of similar species living somewhere else. So it's a fascinating experience all the way through and people love it. It is still really cool. It's got its own little creek in there. Yeah. 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 Do you have extra security because all the kids get scared or, you know, walking down those steps or people fall Well, there's two ways to go through it. Yes. You can take the more advanced trail, which is probably the one you're thinking of. Yeah. I know. My kids was scared to death in there. Yeah. (laughs) So you had to arm them with them. When they were little, they were. Yeah. Yeah. Mine mine weren't either. I was always afraid they were going to dive into yeah. the creek or something but, um, <laughs> but yeah no kids love it and you know people whip yeah. out their their phones with a flashlight and follow through and and some kind of you know build up to it over time so great great stories about the cave for sure the cave's going nowhere that's yeah. good no. so did they like have to take out part of the building to put that in or did they put it in i have seen some of the pictures of how they built it and um no they really went in they were kind of it's piecemeal like fine hand sculpting work that that created it so they just used the fact that they could kind of build some staircases between the different layers to be able to build that experience within the cave. And then the Ice Age, you know, you come out and go into yeah. the Ice Age. So that's that's another example of an exhibit that's getting an overhaul right now and new interpretive material and new in- information. And that'll come online probably late summer of 20. So lots of things to look forward to and keep coming back for. Yeah, there was that thing at the end of the Ice Age thing where they had like the lab we could see them yes so the paleontology lab has moved um further up like up closer to the paleontology gallery so it'll you'll see it right when you walk through and there are all sorts of guys in there men and women who are in there working on different fossil preparations and really there we just unveiled a massive triceratops skull um that we brought back from i think montana if i'm correct on and so that's now on display. And we have lots wow. of volunteer opportunities for people who don't want to interact with the public but want to sit in a quiet space and scrape dirt off of petrified dirt <laughs> off dinosaur bones. Oh, um, nice. So they're not actors. Those are real, real people oh, doing gosh, real yeah, things. Yeah, huh? I mean, there are retirees from one's a retired biology professor. Got another guy who's a former purchasing director from Procter & Gamble who, who in his retirement wants to help do the dinosaur bones and everybody in between. I'm trying wow. to find the guy's name. Uh, I heard him uh, on and on uh, WVXU, and that's who I originally reached out to Cody. To try, I reached out to him and tried okay. to... Oh, is it Glenn Storrs? No. Yeah. Whoever they were, they would just secure that big piece of land out in Butler County that had the pre... Oh, Bob Genheimer. Genheimer, yes. yeah. Yeah, well, okay, that's... return my emails. I want him in here talking about pre-Columbian Native Americans. I will make that happen for you because <laughs> awesome. he is an amazing storyteller. And Bob... Oh, good, good. He, it, I mean, his work in archaeology is terrific. And, yeah, he was very active in trying to help make sure that the, that land in Butler County was preserved. And he's been active in other places around southwest Ohio as well. Because we had Wes Cowan in... Site, right? Yeah, right. We had Wes Cowan in here. And that was... He, he did before he was all a- antique He yeah. was... Uh, he did that. So we he talked was, a little bit about right. that. And we had one other person in here talking about that but i want to like i'll do like a whole hour on well Hopewell people you might need to take the pod out to the han site and dig in the dirt with bob and tyler and the other guys a uh, guy that there. used to work here who worked uh Stryley. 
Yeah. Yeah, Dan did that too. Yeah, he yeah. invited us out. In fact, I've got the portable tape recorder in my briefcase. I could go out there okay. and get some, yeah, get some, some sound there. Podcast yeah. Mobile. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's another exhibition. In fact, I was just having lunch at the Echo before I came over here and reading up on the details of how we're going to develop that story. That'll be next to that transportation gallery at some point in the History Museum. And if you think about it, we all live in this area because the rivers brought us here. Yeah. And the rivers brought many people here, and they brought people to do commerce together, and they brought the animals here. So, of course, the people followed the animals. So the great story about Big Bone Lick, which is amazing, which is like archaeology and paleontology together. So being able to tell the story of the earliest indigenous people and then how settlers moved in or, or um, resettlers, as I've now heard the term more yeah. recently appropriately yeah. used, um, and come and explain kind of how, how, how our region has really developed over the last, let's call it 15,000 years because of the geography and then the way in which people come together. So yeah, Bob and Tyler and lots of other people, I will make sure that they are in here to awesome. talk to you. There you go. Sort of get your history. How much, uh, I mean, a lot goes on at the museum, but how much is going on outside of the museum? Are you guys funding projects or like, uh, I don't know exhibitions of sorts? So we've got a lot of programs that we do out in the community, mainly through Program on Wheels, where we're taking like hands-on demonstrations into classrooms and connecting with curriculum that the teachers want to have a, a different learning experience with. Or you might find us at a community festival doing similar action. It's not going to be a 45-minute program. It's more of a 10-minute drive-by kind of dynamic. So most of our activity out in the community looks something along those lines. Um, we, on occasion, have some things that we can put on display, like we talked about at the library and the zoo, or the, not the zoo, the airport and other places. But we do programs with the zoo and with the ballet and with other cultural organizations to try and sprinkle in history and science where we can, where it go. makes sense to kind of just keep... My, my goal with all of this is that we need more curious people. We need people who know how to ask questions, who knew, know how to think more critically and take a lot of information and be able to understand and put it in context. And I think that's what makes for a more vibrant community, a more robust economic experience, and certainly a more interesting group of people to live with. So that's what we're pushing for. And every time I can tell a story or add a science experience somewhere in the community, we are game to do that. But, sir, are you guys sponsoring Indiana Jones to go find an idol somewhere mm. in some country or some jungle or from we, a research and exhibition standpoint yeah are you um, actively uh, trying to you know i i don't know the document you know or you know have someone go out and yeah try to find something cool or well bob would be our version of indiana jones and his very <laughs> exotic locations are you know somewhere around the haunt site or or the turpin site or things kind of in this area glenn stores our vertebrate paleontologist um has just been in australia not doing research necessarily but working with the society of uh, vertebrate paleontologists and he's actually going to bring that meeting here to cincinnati an international meeting they all want to come and see our fabulous new dinosaurs and Glenn nice. has run a dinosaur field school in Montana, and we're looking at the possibility of doing that in Colorado um, in the next couple of years as well. And how do how do all the components of that come together financially and make sense? Because um, there is still a, a lot of active research going on in a number of ways. So, and then you gotta bring those heavy bones back here and put them to work in the paleo lab and yeah. then add them to the fossil record and, and do some of that. The other location where we do a lot of research um, 
is in Adams County. So we are co-managing and owning um, about 20,000 acres of the edge of the Appalachian Escarpment with the Nature Conservancy. And so for probably the last 50 years, we have worked hand in hand with the Nature Conservancy to preserve land there and then to begin to understand and do facilitate academic researchers getting access to those areas and then in some ways also getting the public out there. So we've diagnosed a new, I don't know if diagnosed is the right term, but, but discovered a new species of fireflies. We understand lichen. We're tracking the, um, the environment, the habitat, and therefore kind of um, the decline of the Allegheny wood rat. And all of that has to do with, um, lots of factors that go into play and some of it goes across the edge and some of it goes well beyond the Allegheny wood rat is, is not only in that area, but kind of throughout West Virginia, Kentucky, Pennsylvania as well. But we know changes in their environment cause, and there's, I'm going to totally script the story. So I will have Heather Farrington come in and share with you oh all of her stories as <laughs> yeah. the zoologist. The wood rat episode. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and because a lot of that is really important to understanding biodiversity. And so those are not super exotic places in the grand scheme of geography, yeah. but they are really rich in diversity of what they can tell us about the world. Yeah, you guys do need your own podcast. What are you waiting I know, on? Right? You just gave us four episodes. <laughs> You're gonna let us get all the clicks. That's good. I would rather people come out and talk to you, and it gets the you help us amplify the story get in some, all sorts of ways. Get some shirts going. Oh, and speaking oh, okay. of, uh, oh yeah, what kind of shirts can we come up with? Well, while we're oh my here? gosh, we the have, cave! I want a cave shirt right now. Well, well think well, about this. James has one of the actual museum center. Oh, okay. That, oh yes, yes, I've seen and that. The one I wanted to ask you about, and you may or may not have the answer to this. Uh, we have one. It's the Hall of Justice because yes. the Hall of Justice from Super Friends is based on was that an accident is it because taft and hannah barbera yeah, and, uh-huh, yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah and um years ago probably like 2009 i think alex shabar figured out he he tracked all of the details he was a journalist Ooh. for the inquirer at the time okay and he followed that thread of an idea all the way through and actually talked got the guy on the phone who was one of the original illustrators for uh. hannah barbera and said how did that come to be and he said we just had all of these pictures of these buildings of Cincinnati that because of the Taft broadcasting connection and that's why huh. like they saw a union terminal and said, yeah. you know, that's going to be it. Wow. So that there is not go. by accident that that happened. Riverfront stadium. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's just, I mean, it's such an Long incredible <laughs> yeah. cool location. Well, you drive yeah. around and look at all these buildings and I, you know, it's just, I'm mesmerized by the diversity of architecture here. So, yeah. Yeah. So we can come up with a few t-shirt ideas. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, the I don't sci- know if we well, can raise science, millions, but we can sure try. The Science yeah. Museum of Minnesota has made a killing off of their dinosaur hoodie that is in Stranger Things. Uh, oh, a really? Whole, a whole other random kind of funny story. Sort of, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, he's a Stranger Things nut, too. Yeah, yeah. So. so, yeah, you know what I'm you talking know. about? The long yeah. neck dinosaur. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Speaking of science centers, it's weird. That seems to be the thing everywhere else. Yet the museum center here doesn't seem to have any kind of competition like that. Cause Cleveland, we have Great Lakes Science Center. Right. Chicago has yeah. the big one. Pittsburgh has Buell. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. It's, it's an interesting kind of evolution of the museum field because the natural history museums existed really coming out of the research vein and the the academy focus of collecting and then doing the research, but not really interpreting so much for the public. And then over time, they put things on display, and they're kind of the classic dioramas that you see at, at American Museum of Natural History. 
But for whatever reason, those museums and maybe the, the leaders of those museums at the time or the academic researchers were less inclined to explain and create hands-on experiences around basic chemistry, physics, you know, biology, they just didn't make that leap. So the Science Center is really driven by Oppenheimer, right? And and late 60s, and wanting to create hands-on experiences that people had to observe and try and test and fail and have that whole thing. And they have not always, they've run these kind of parallel paths. It's also the piece that we were missing as an organization for a long time. So being able to fix Union Terminal means we can rebuild the exhibits inside Union Terminal, which means we can really take that place and intersect hands-on science in the classic science center way with the depth and breadth of the natural history collections and scientific collections that we have. So it's, it is, we are all of those things now. And that's, that's going to be the really fun and cool thing that we get to drive forward for the next 200 years of our history is really that intersection of all of those things together. So when do you expect everything to be like fully back in? And, or is it a, an evolving process? Yeah, it's an evolving process. I mean, I think everything is going to be ready and all the way back in, like, let's call it 2022, 2023. Oh, my gosh. But, yeah, I mean, we got a lot of work to do. So we're still working through who are the right funders to help us build this topic or that topic and who are the partners that need to be there and, and how can we get it all done because ambition far outpaces resources and and time so yeah. so we got we got plenty of work to do and we need everybody to keep visiting and and sharing their ideas with us and and relishing what we have so let's talk about funding for a second yeah. so so you do get tax money not anymore you so don't let's, anymore. let's clarify this in all sorts of ways the sales tax that was uh, passed in 2014 expires in april of 2020 and that very specifically only covers the construct the restoration repair maintenance construction costs of union terminal and that's it that's all that that money can be used for and that's the only sales tax or tax dollars that that Cincinnati Museum Center sees previously when we were voting on things in 2004 and 2009 those were property tax levies that were also only for Union Terminal so none of the sales tax or property tax dollars that have ever come to the museum have been for exhibits or programs or anything like that that's a little different you know the zoo does a lot of they use their tax dollars to help support animal care and other things as well as infrastructure and other organizations around town library uses their sales their tax dollars for all sorts of content and things so we're a little different in that regard and when our tax ends our say our union terminal tax ends in april of 2020 that's it so this new tax that's being discussed is something that has to go through a different process and is not a continuation in air quotes of the tax for Union Terminal. And even if it continues, it's not going to go to Union It's not going to go to Union Terminal. So I would encourage everybody to keep <laughs> shopping in Hamilton County through <laughs> April of 2020 because you're helping pay for the construction of Union Terminal. Uh, but that's the end of that. And then from a funding perspective, we are doing private philanthropy, um, federal and state grants when they're available, and really driving uh, a lot of our business through ticket sales and memberships at the museum. So everybody who buys a membership is helping to support the museum in an important way as well. Oh, yeah. That's one of the best deals in Cincinnati, too. The zoo family membership and the, yeah. the museum center. Yeah. 
Yep. Um, and what you may not know about your museum center membership, but it's really important because if you travel with your kids or over spring break or you just travel in general and you want to visit museums and other communities, your membership at Cincinnati Museum Center gets you free and discounted admission at all sorts of other museums. It's called the a country. reciprocal membership. Oh, there you are. I, Perfect. Um, one of my many, 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 many jobs I used to do, I worked for the Carnegie in Pittsburgh. Oh, fabulous. Who owned the Buell Science yes, Center. Yes, yes. And we, we weren't selling memberships. We were asking for support. And in return... We would extend you a membership to either the Carnegie, the Buell, or both if you wanted it. There you wow. go. Yeah. Yep. So Indianapolis Children's Museum? Although, okay, so I'm glad you brought that up because they are the one museum in this area that does not participate in that program. Oh, those jerks. Uh, dirty so, names, yes. Kozai? Kozai does, absolutely. And Great Lakes. Great Lakes, Buell. Kentucky Science Center, <laughs> Carnegie, <laughs> Carnegie Science Center. Yeah, <laughs> Detroit. I mean, you anywhere you're going to drive around in yeah. a six-hour radius that you would kind of go on a weekend trip yeah. with your family, you will you will have access to it. And history museums as well, and children's mm-hmm. museums. And so it's, man. you know, the Chicago See, museums. I've got to go to all these on my own because whenever I go through, man, the family wants to blow right through them. And that's like, I'm stopping looking at stuff. You're a headset guy. And yeah, yeah. Locked in. In fact, when Hannah starts at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in January, I'm going to go just myself and spend the day there because yeah. they are always rushing through there. And it's like, I'm, they were way ahead of me. I'm just looking at all the radio displays and all the disc jockeys, and they're, and they're playing pinball in the pinball, which is a great display, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's good. And my 16-year-old is like that, too. In fact, we went to visit our older son, who's in college in Pittsburgh, and the 16-year-old requested that we drop him off at the Carnegie Museum of Natural History because yep. he was not interested in doing the college thing with mom and dad and his little oh, brother. Okay. And he said, I may or may not join you for lunch. Come back. I'll, I'll text you when you can come back and pick me up. So there you go. he was like, I do wow. not want to be rushed through antiquities. I want to take yeah, my time and enjoy all of that. So, yeah. 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 I understand that. Man. Museum professionals are the worst museum Fortnite. visitors. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even a professional. I just like to, I like to see stuff. That's awesome. That's good. That's so my, good. I think my favorite exhibit was the bodies exhibition. Ah, yes. That was. Uh, is that still a thing? Is that still traveling? Or they, they are. Yeah, different. Some of them are still traveling, and some of those. Um, bodies are also on permanent display in a couple of different museums. So Museum of Science and Industry has some of them uh, there all the time to help uh, explain biology. The mummy one was good. Yeah. That was so cool. We yeah. thought we were just going to see like proper Egyptian mummies and it's no. It's oh, like all kinds of right. mummified people. There was this royal family I think that was... Yes. Something they... with the air draft in the crypt that or mummified some... all of those yeah. bodies and then yeah. the mummies in the peat bog. I was like, yeah, I don't, how yeah, does yeah, that happen? About in so, Belgium? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, it's crazy. They just yeah. found like 20 mummies last week in Egypt. Like, Somebody was just telling me about that. I gotta I gotta go back and look up, pull up that news story. Yeah, like just, just stumbled upon them. Like, yeah, yeah there's 20 mummies. <laughs> yeah. just, I don't know. It's amazing what's what we're able to bring to Cincinnati and, and the fact that we have that permanent gallery downstairs that really is flexible and kind of essentially a black box allows us to do a lot of those things. So Bodies was a great exhibition. It's probably the most well attended exhibition that we've ever had. And I think a lot of that was driven by interest and controversy and, and oh yeah and fear are that, these it, oh, and, fear and, that uh, they were it uh, was going to get closed Vietnamese down slaves and, or something yeah. or the number of Josh who couldn't of... be with us here with the uh, Star Wars one oh yes was fine I liked at the end the Kenner yep. the toy one yeah. I spent more time there and that was just the one little room when it's right. because our studio and I was I looked at every single thing in there that Kenner story is amazing that was that should have been yeah. an exhibit so in itself fun. yeah so fun now, I'm all in because that's history to me even though it was in the 80s and whatnot yeah but I mean, do you have the purists who are 
you know, blowing up your email because you go from mummies or bodies and all this educational stuff to something that's kind of pop culture science? Well, I think it, they're, they don't blow up my email, but it, um, <laughs> well. uh, you know, people are always like, oh, that's not for me. But and so we try to get a whole range so we can really have a lot of different things. Yeah. You know, I was so excited to bring the Princess Diana exhibition in and and uh, a yeah. number of my colleagues were like, oh, that's not going to be <laughs> like they, they could care less about fashion. They didn't understand how it could connect to the community. And I think we did a really I mean, people loved seeing the fashion and the story of her life. But we also took that whole concept that she has about philanthropy and making a community impact and added a whole piece to it that talked about who are the women who were quote the daughters of the queen city and the kind of the, the similar who had left a lasting impact on our community and we had fashion garments that we could pull out over a range of 150 years from the collection and show those off as well so it's kind of fun to be able to have this thing that comes from the outside and then put a Cincinnati twist on top of it. So we did that with Kenner. We um, obviously Destination Moon. We have a great story with Neil Armstrong as, oh, yeah. as a connection yeah. to the community. And then as we go forward, we did that with Pompeii and the work that UC was doing in Pompeii. And we are um, bringing in next and probably we haven't officially announced it yet. Oh, so, exclusive. So get exclusive. Oh, dropping it. Um, we are bringing in the exhibition of Mayan artifacts from Guatemala. Oh, cool. And there's an entire local University of Cincinnati connection and story there that we'll tell as well. So having the ability, because this community has such richness to it, there are lots of ways that you can layer in a Cincinnati connection to, yeah. to every special exhibition that we bring in. Same thing with T-shirts. Like, you know, we've been making shirts since 2010, and uh, yeah. there's still millions of topics we yes, haven't yes. Uh, You guys have the best T-shirts. They're awesome. I love the, <laughs> I love the spirit of them and uh, the whimsy and and just the depth of the community, too. <laughs> yep. Yeah. That's we what got, we're about. we got to come trying. up with a few ideas for us, yes. No doubt. <laughs> I mean, think about it. We have all this bicycle... Uh, U.S. playing card stuff in our collection as well. As I'm, oh, as yeah. I'm looking at your wall here, they were here, oh, friends yeah. of the show. We had uh, their CEO here. Very cool. Yeah, they have their own collection too of you know, old woodcut. Oh, that's right. Stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's awesome. I didn't know you guys had stuff. Yeah, you know, I love Geta. But there's a so, everybody yeah. does. You have a Geta museum. And see, and <laughs> then I can have a Geta program in our food science display. Yeah. What What is the science behind Geta? Or you can just do a whole Cincinnati Slowly. foods. Thing. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So the possibilities are endless. How far uh, out are you booked? Like, do you know what's coming in 2025? Or? I don't know, but I know that what we've got through the fall of 20, and there are a couple things that I'm looking at with our team on Horizon for 21, and it's kind of a game of Tetris, if you will, of like, how many galleries do we have access to? What's available? What do we want to curate ourselves? What size fits when? How does the timing all fit together? So... Plus, we we're still working on all the permanent gallery reinstallation as well. So, so like, do you have to put in like a a bid? Like these, obviously, these traveling exhibitions cost money, and they they have. I'm sure that they they make money on their end. Do you have? Is there like a guarantee that? Okay, if you bring this here, we guarantee you that so many people are going to be walking through, or uh, you know, like how like you don't want to bring Star Wars here and then say just no one gets it, no one shows up. Obviously, that's not going to happen. Right. But, um, you know, like, like, uh, is there, is there, 
I don't know. Like, how, how's that whole process? Yeah, work? There, I mean, there are all different models of how that works. So, for instance, when we did the exhibition with the with Pompeii, or when we did it with the Dead Sea Scrolls, those are government agencies. So we worked with the Italian government, we worked with the Israeli Antiquities Group, and they help kind of create a tour of where that's going to go to a couple museums around the country or around the world. And then there are you know different kind of financial revenue sharing models and, and expense sharing models to make all of that possible. And then in other cases, there are um, for-profit exhibition companies who have all the capital up front to go and create really spectacular things. And then there's a rental fee and, and we have discussions and, you know, they will make decisions about where they're going to put those exhibits around the country based on previous attendance trends and how, you know, how many people they expect from the region to attend. So the good news for us is that, you know, we are within a driving distance of a lot of of places. And when we bring a special exhibition, they show up in different ways. You think about the Vatican exhibition that we had some time ago, um, huge collection of folks from Detroit and Nashville came to Cincinnati to see that exhibition. And Star Wars had been um, in Denver and in, um, God, where was it before that? Somewhere else. Like, And so we were the only place that it was going to be in this area. So again, it pulls people in at different different ways. So it's it's a whole manner. Like, all... Yeah. yeah, the answer is yes. It all it all happens that way. I'm sure it's it crazy. It does, and there are. It's a master plan to figure out who's who's available and when it's available, and and lots of things like to come here because um, we are a less expensive city to mount some of those exhibitions in than others, and for travel and for driving it into the building as opposed to hoisting it up in through a window on the second story, and oh, wow. and sometimes they like to come and debut in Cincinnati. And then send it elsewhere around the country, so just kind of depends. I remember seeing like what was it the eighties where uh, the whole King Tut oh, yeah, exhibition yeah. went around mm, the the craze of yep. all of that. Yeah, when's that coming back? I mean, is that, well, is that, that is actually Cairo King Tut is never coming back again. The Egyptians are not going to let the mask out of the the country, but. Um, and also because they want people to come to Egypt. Yeah, like the, exactly. Tourism is a number one, the yeah. number one industry that they have. But they are carefully allowing for other things to travel. And there are a number of things that are, you know, that were removed from Egypt, like in the 1800s or early 1900s by all sorts of, of archaeologists that are scattered all over museums in Europe. And so those objects go on display on, on at different times. And the Egyptians in general are supportive of those exhibitions because they know that creates a level of appreciation for Egyptian culture and a curiosity that would help drive visitation to those sites in Egypt. And, you know, this discovery that you were just talking about with the mummies that were recently found, I, I think people are super excited to see where that's going to go as yeah, another totally. destination as well. But it's yeah. fascinating. We just we just had an an Egyptian um, exhibition um, over the summer, and you know, it's like six thousand years of Egyptian pharaohs. It's an insane amount of time to think about. And Jeez. Yeah. relative in in. I was just covered in sand. Yeah, yeah. And you think about us. We've been here for how many years, and it's not <laughs> the culture ebbs and flows in all sorts yeah. of ways. Lorca, it's time for a code. Yeah. <laughs> Let's see. Yeah, at the end of 
Yeah, man, we've just been right cruising. That's I know. how it works. Thought we just got here. We got a lot of content that we can always talk about. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. We won't go for four hours today. We got things to do, t-shirts to make. Um, so yeah, uh, at the end of every episode, we ask our guests to provide us with a code, okay. a word, a special phrase, whatever you want. Uh, and anyone listening can go to sensyshirts.com or come into any Sensi Shirts retail store. Yell out the code, and they'll save 20% on their whole order. Yeah, so this code will be good until the next episode comes out, people. So don't email us because the code doesn't work. It's We want you to listen to these episodes and go use the code today. So... I'm going to choose Destination Moon as okay. the code. Destination Moon. All right. Jot that down. There you go. All right. Come into our store, yell Destination Moon, and after the sales clerk gives you a weird look... Tell them that's a podcast. So I was working in OTR, <laughs> and this dude recognized my voice from the podcast, and I was just helping out that day, and then he said uh, he shoots, he scores, and for a second I just thought he was making conversation. I'm like, oh, that's the podcast code this week. <laughs> yeah. So it was a random If they comment. give you a blank look, even I forget. So you might have to remind me. scores. I heard the code on the podcast because I almost didn't give it to him, and I was like, the last second I'm like, oh, jeez. <laughs> so That's awesome. Yep. <laughs> All right, so get online, follow uh Museum Center on the, the Twitters and the Instagrams and all that yeah. stuff. Cincy Museum is the best way to track us down. Cincy Museum. All right. All right. Yeah. Thanks for coming in. Thank you for having me. Elizabeth Pierce, president and CEO of the Cincinnati Museum Center. And boy, it's hard to believe that there may be people out there that haven't been to the Museum Center or maybe haven't been in a while. That's more believable, but uh, you got to go check it out, folks. Uh, they've got all kinds of new stuff, like she was saying. Um, if you're used to the old museum like I was, you got to check out what they've done since the, uh, the remodel and the reconstruction of the facility. Now, if there's someone you'd like to hear on the podcast, just drop us an email, podcast at cincyshirts.com, and put podcast guest in the subject line, and then you can also tell us a little bit about the person if you would like, and we'll track them down and try to get them on the show. Be sure to tell friends and loved ones about the show, including folks who may no longer live in the area but still feel connected to the tri-state. And as always, if you haven't already, go back and plunder the Cincy Shirts podcast archives. Just spoke to a guy at one of my other jobs that I do, and he said, yeah, I just uh, went back and uh, picked all the ones I wanted to listen to, and uh, and I'm going to listen to them uh, this weekend. So there you go. So you should do the same. Today's show is produced by me with help from Josh and Darren. Our theme music is Cincinnati by Big Nothing. They are from Philadelphia. You can find all of their music at iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you get your music. Find vintage tees from great places like Philadelphia, Boston, Phoenix, Pittsburgh, Cleveland, Louisville, Seattle, Portland, and many, many more at Old School Shirts com. Lots of defunct sports teams, uh, old shopping centers, radio stations, uh, just like Cincy Shirts, but for those towns. How about that? And again, the promo code for this episode is Destination Moon. All lowercase, all uppercase, doesn't matter. You can do it either way. It will all work. And you can use that to take 20% off your entire CincyShirts.com or OldSchoolShirts.com order. Or you can use the code in our physical, or as we say, brick and mortar stores in Over the Rhine, Hyde Park, and Loveland. Follow our social channels, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Snapchat for the latest in Shirts news. Give us a good review wherever you get the podcast from. And as always, download or stream us next time. Bye. Hey,
Puxa sempre, Pai. 